0: It is a continuation of the first we began in John chapter 21 verse 15 following so when they had finished breakfast Jesus said to Simon Peter Simon son of John do you love me more than these he said to him yes Lord you know that I love you he said to him tend my lambs he said to him again the second time You know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And the one who also had leaned back on his breast at the supper and said to him, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, therefore seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This saying therefore went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things and we know that his witness is true, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we rejoice in all the good things that we know and experience in life. Every good and perfect gift comes from your gracious hands. We thank you that even the harsh learning experiences through which we pass have purposes to teach us lessons that perhaps we could not learn any other way. We thank you for your great wisdom in working these things out so that one day they shall reflect your glory and they shall all be for our good. We are thankful for the lesson that we have this morning. It's far bigger than the preacher is to preach it. And so we pray for the Holy Spirit to take your blessed word and feed our minds and hearts with it so that we may be strengthened to be true, earnest Christians in all that we have in are. Bless us in our sharing with people all over the world who are hungry and who are in need. And may they know that what we give, we give because of what you have given, your great son who came to save us. In his name we pray, amen. It's a very moving fact that this scene in the close of the gospel according to John brings us back again to uh, an interesting encounter The first time that Jesus had called these people to follow him was when they were fishing. And it's always a moving experience to go back to a place that stirs up memories. Just this morning before we came up here we had a telephone call and my wife said Frank Warren had called. And I'm glad Frank called and I'm glad he's here this morning because Frank and I used to go to the same grade school out in Paris, Texas. That's a long time ago. And uh, it brings back a lot of memories, just to think about old Graham School in the third ward in Paris, Texas. And when I go back home again, even though things are all changed around there, it does me good to walk up the same street that I used to walk up barefooted in the springtime and headed for school. And many memories flood through my mind when I cross through the cemetery that I always walked through to go to that school. I can remember as a little boy the cool feeling when I got close to that cemetery. And then as time went on, I can remember uh, how many things come back uh, to me again. Well, uh, there's something good about going home and away because it can stir up memories that may be useful and helpful to us. But I think that when Jesus appeared to these apostles who were fishing, that perhaps there was one of them especially whose heart was very heavy. It was heavy because he had betrayed his Lord. And I want you for that reason to look especially at your bulletin this morning and the part that says love is on the other side because this is taken from a part of Scripture Union. Uh, In just a couple of weeks their board of trust will be meeting and I'm a trustee of that group. This is a wonderful little magazine, little devotional book that's about 130 years old that has to do with the helping us to stick with the reading of the scripture. And when it deals with this particular passage, we are told that failure does not mean that we will not be able to serve Jesus in the future. I don't know about you, but that's a great comfort to me. To know that failure does not mean that I will not be able to serve Jesus in the future. Because there are people, when you have tried and failed, are ready to cast you off on the junk pile and never look at you again and think that you will never be of any future service to the Lord. Often young people come to me and they want to know about the quote's victorious Christian life they want to talk to me about some six million dollar Christian man or woman. Uh, That is some person who's sort of a bionic Christian, who never fails, who always succeeds. Well there is no such person. Jesus Christ was the only one. Now here we're told about Peter. Jesus shows us that by lifting Peter from the trough of despair, just as Peter had denied Jesus three times in public, so Jesus gives him a gentle threefold push back into leadership in front of the others. Jesus knows the worst about us, but he continues to accept and to use us in his church. Remember that the next time you deal with someone who has tried and failed. Uh, Paul has a wonderful verse on how to restore a backslider. It's in Galatians. Uh, he wrote, Galatians the letter to the Galatians to a group of people uh, for whom he had some great problems in dealing with and uh, when he writes to them he tells them if one is overtaken in a fall ye which are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of meekness considering yourself lest you also be tempted now look at our lesson again printed Love includes emotions, but it does not depend only on good feelings. Jesus helped Peter to see what love is. What is love? Love is putting Jesus before possessions and friends and lifestyle and ambitions. And then look up that reference in Colossians 1.18, and you'll see this reasserted. Uh, Look it up and read it. Uh, It means becoming involved with others. That's what love is. Feeling is more than talking about God. I spoke a moment ago about going back home again. And I hope I can go back this uh, spring. I can't go this spring, but I wish I could get there early. I'd like to get there before my mother's 90th birthday. Uh, I would like to be there for that time uh, because it, uh, you know, sentiment is not what I'm talking about. Now, sentiment, listen to this and it'll be worth coming to church today. Sentiment uh, is a feeling without a responsibility. Now, that's worth knowing. Sentiment is a feeling without a responsibility. Now, that's not very helpful. That's like tickling your feet to make yourself laugh. It, It doesn't get you anywhere. Uh, There's nothing to that. The type of sentiment that will produce some change in your will and in your direction, that type of sentiment is good because it, it, it can bear some responsibility to it. Being involved with others, feeling is more than talking about God. Let people feel God's love through you because you try to understand and care for them in practical ways. That's what Jesus does with Peter here. Then dedicating your will and life to God for him to use in whatever way he chooses. Study this this afternoon or some other time. Refusing to compete with others when God uses them differently from yourself. As Peter and John's ministries will be different. And remember that those who are forgiven the most, love the most, and are often the most used by God. You are never a write-off. And then remember the keynote, which is to follow me. That is to follow Jesus. Now then, back to this marvelous chapter again, and I'll try to give you some exposition of it. When John had come to the end of his book, he had written those tremendous words. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of preaching the gospel. That's the only reason I am in the ministry today. That's the reason the gospel of John was written. That's the reason Jesus died on the cross. That's the ge- reason God brought him back from the dead. That believing in him you might have life through his name and there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. There is no other way, there is no other name. Now then comes this Easter postscript. John, I expect, did not intend to put this there. But like we are so often prone to do when we write a letter We've got ready to seal it. In fact, I've sealed it and then had to tear it open to put a postscript. I thought of something after I'd written it that I wanted to add. And John thought of something that he needed to add too. It's a whole chapter and it deals largely with Peter. And it's because of the notable failure that Peter had made that John is going to deal with it here. He is going to show us the challenge that he brought to Peter, and he is going to show the confession that Peter makes of his Lord, and then he is going to show the commission that he gives to this so-called failure. John knows that there's a reason for writing all of this down, and the reason is that people will later be able to understand the prominent place that this man plays in the part of of the disciples. When Jesus said, I shall build my church upon this rock, I started to call this sermon, Rocky III, uh, because I've preached on Peter before, Rocky three It's a good name for a sermon. He called him Rocky. He called him Rocky because he's gonna build his church on him. And I have young people who come back to me and they say, oh, I can't become a Christian because if I do become a Christian, or I try to, uh, I'll fail or I won't be perfect, and I say look at Peter, look at Peter, I've often told this congregation I am not a Roman Catholic, I'm a Holy Catholic, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, and I accept a lot of friends in the Roman Catholic Church, but if I were picking a pope, Peter would be my choice, Uh, he would be good, because if he can be a Christian, I can be a Christian too. I can give all my heart and life over to him. Now, I don't believe in the infallibility. Uh, uh, Peter certainly wasn't infallible, and that proves uh, this right here, and I like our present Pope very much. In fact, someone was upset because I have a picture of him in my room at home, but but he's a good man. We can learn a lot from him. After these things, Jesus showed himself to them. Now what's he going to do? Uh, He is going to restore Peter. Simon Peter is there and he calls out the names of these people. Peter. He's going to restore that failure. Thomas, that cynic, who said, Unless I can see him and put my hand into his side and my finger into his nail prints, I won't believe that he is raised from the dead. Nathanael, that honest Jew in whom there was no guile, And the sons of Zebedee, and that's putting it politely, they were the sons of thunder who wanted to call down fire from heaven and destroy some people who didn't want Jesus to come through their village, and two other of his disciples. Well, I I say this because Jesus deals with each of these personally, and this is after his resurrection from the dead. And if Easter does not mean that the risen, living Christ is dealing with you personally, then you ought to study whether or not you know Christ. Do you know him? Is he alive as far as you are concerned? And does he exercise a deciding influence over your life? A personal resurrection. We don't really expect celebrities to pay as much attention. I was in Palm Beach at a board meeting in February, and Peter Ustinov walked across the street, big old chugging fellow came across the street, and I wanted to speak to him because I'd watched that series on television about Nicholas Nickleby, and I'd seen him, and you know, I felt like I knew him, and I thought, where is that guy? I know him. And then I thought, i will going to speak to him, and then I thought, no, why do you want to speak to him? I mean, worry him. Then everyone on the street will go over there. And so I didn't speak to him. And then I, I, I remember another time when we were over in um, Edinburgh and the, the queen was coming by. I remember it was raining terribly hard and our three sons were with us and uh, uh, the queen was driving uh, uh, her entourage, her, the security car was coming by and there were thousands of people literally lined the street to see the queen. Don't tell my wife this, but I've always loved the queen. I've been in love with her for years. She is a very beautiful lady and I like to watch. When I was in Edinburgh, I used to watch the news go off at night and then they would play God Save the Queen and show that wonderful picture of Queen Elizabeth. And I wanted to see the Queen. Now, when the Queen's car went by, one of our children who just got his camera that year, I think was Frank, I took a picture of it and later I looked in his scrapbook and there was a blur there and it said the queen goes by. (laughs) Well, I didn't expect the security car to pull over and then the the queen's car, Rolls Royce, to stop and the doorman to open it and the queen to say, Hey, Calvin, come here. Tell me about your boys. Tell me about your family. uh, How's everything in Montreal." Yeah, I didn't expect that. I thought it would be great just to get a glimpse of her when she goes by. But now here is Jesus, infinitely more important than any earthly figure, the Son of God, and he comes back and he manifests himself to Simon Peter, the failure who denied him, to Thomas the cynic, uh, to Nathaniel who said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth, to the sons of Zebedee who want to call down thunder, who want to sit on his right and his left in the kingdom. He comes back personally to each one of these and so Simon Peter said I'm going fishing now a lot of people argue about this and they say well Peter had gone back on his calling that the Lord had called him to be a fisher of men and here he is going back to fish for fish why did he do that I think he did it because he wanted something to eat after the resurrection you still have to make a living after Easter you still have to go back to work after Sunday, you've got to go back to work on Monday. And there's nothing really wrong with this. I don't think it's meant to teach us that he went back, uh, uh, deserted Jesus. Uh, Peter was an impetuous person. He was impulsive. Uh, and uh, uh, he was not the kind of person who could just sit still. And he had to be doing something. And I think they needed to make a living. So Peter uh, went to go fishing. Well, there again, they fished all night and they caught nothing. There are other commentators who say, well, this is proof that they weren't in the Lord's will. If that's true, I have certainly not been in the Lord's will about 75% of the time that I've gone fishing <laughs> because I know that feeling about not catching anything. And, and I've also known some... 29 carat reprobates that must have been in his will because they were catching fish. (laughs) So I don't think that's any way to judge this. Uh, But when the the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. And yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. There was something about that tremendous, powerful, resurrected body of his that made it difficult for them to uh, recognize him. He walked with those two on the road to Emmaus, and their eyes were holden that they should not know him, and they didn't until he had made the prayer and the breaking of the bread. Then they understood who he was. And then they could say, Our hearts burned within us while we walked with him in the way, and he opened unto us the scriptures. There was something there that they had not, that, that was about him, that was too great for them to take in in that moment. So he is on the shore. And he calls out, and I'm glad John apologized before we came out here, John Hilsman, who led so beautifully a while ago in the first part of our worship. He said, I'm not sure I have the same translation you do. I'm glad he didn't, because my translation says, Jesus therefore said to them, children, have ye any fish? John's translation is better. John said, boys, have you caught anything? <laughs> now that's really uh, what, the, what the word means. It's a diminutive form, but it means boys. You could say lads if you were a Scot, uh, uh, but uh, it means boys. It's a diminutive, affectionate thing. They hadn't caught anything, and they answered him, No, we didn't catch anything. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the the boat, and you'll find a catch. They cast, therefore, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. There was something miraculous about this. Now, I know all the people that say that Jesus just could see a shoal of fish from over there a hundred yards. Why do you have to take all the excitement out of the Bible? Uh, If it's a miracle, let it be a miracle. How in the world did he get them on the fire over there and get them cooked? If he's God, you don't have any problem. If he's not God, all you got is problems. Uh, uh, But he is God. And if he said to the fish, jump on the fire... It gets on the fire. Uh, It's no problem. Any more than Elijah in the Old Testament is fed with ravens who bring something for him to eat. Um, And so here, uh, they recognize that the first time they had met the Lord, the Lord had also been a night when they had been fishing and they hadn't caught anything. And he called to them and they did catch something. And so John must have nudged Peter and he said, that's the Lord. Peter catches on a little slow, but when he catches on, he does something. Immediately, he grabbed his robe or whatever he covered himself with and tied it around himself and jumped into the water and started making for shore. That's just like him. The rest of them were there dragging the feet. And uh, Peter got on to shore. And when he got there, I've often thought that, that Peter must have been a very powerful man because it says there were 153 fish. And and it is added that they were large fish. And when they get close to to the shore, Peter comes back and pulls that big net full of fish all the way up to the shore by himself. He must have been very powerfully built. Jesus deals with this man personally, and he makes a great testimony of him. The other night, we had a hulking giant of a man who spoke at our athletic banquet. Number 65 for the Oakland Raiders, Mickey Marvin. He, his, his minimum playing weight is around 270. It goes up to 320. He told us when he was six years old he weighed 135 pounds. And uh, I was watching Mickey loves Jesus with all of his heart. Now, he murders the king's English, and he doesn't have always pronounced the Bible names exactly correct, but he loves the Bible, and he reads it. And he he came to the house afterwards, and we visited some, but he stayed over there in in that cafeteria until the floors had been mopped, and the manager was waiting for us to leave because he took a boy back in the little private dining room, and talked with that boy about the Lord. And then Mickey called to me and said, Will you help him to ask Jesus to come into his heart? That's a great thing. That this big giant of a man, with his simple love for Jesus Christ, was using all that he knew for him. These fisher folk, not the big, educated, powerful people of the world were called, but these fishermen. And they use what they have, and the Lord honors it, and that boy did ask Jesus Christ to come into his heart. And I noticed he waited patiently, and the kids who wanted his autograph came up to Mickey, and, and one boy said something very complimentary about him, and Mickey looked up and he said, Don't praise me, praise Jesus. And then he wrote his name, and he put a Bible verse down. And all those youngsters, young people in the college, were standing there listening because these sports figures mean a lot to them. But to see the genuineness of his faith uh, meant much to me. Uh, The big, hulking man uh, with a sweet love for Jesus Christ in his heart. And it touched those people. Someone once said to Dwight L. Moody, who was the greatest soul winner of the last century, They said to Mr. Moody, once when he was speaking, your education is defective, your grammar is terrible. And Mr. Moody, who didn't have the benefit of even a high school education, turned to the man who spoke to him and he said, I'm using all the grammar I know for Jesus. What are you doing with yours? It was a good thing to say. A very good thing to say. What are we doing if this personal resurrection has come to us? What have we done? Well... The question is asked of him after Jesus feeds them, and then after he has fed them, he restores this backslider. He asks a simple question, but a searching question and a saving question, and one that can come to all of us. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now the commentators have difficulty with more than these, whether it means more than these fishing boats and nets, or more than these disciples. Maybe it's a combination of both. Peter had boasted that night in the upper room that though all men would betray him, he would never betray him. So I think he must have thought, Simon, son of John, do you really love me more than these love me, these other people who are here? And he said, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. Now there's a lot of play a lot of times that preachers talk about the play on words here one word agape which means god's love which does not expect anything in return and gives fully and phileo another greek word for love which is a more uh, a milder term of affection I don't know that that makes all that much difference because they were probably speaking in Aramaic And uh, I don't know if you can put that much weight on it. Maybe it was the tone of the voice in which it was spoken. Lovest thou me more than these? And Peter answered, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He said it to him a second time. Then he said it to him a third time. And Peter was grieved because he said it to him the third time. And Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And you also know how fallible I am. He knew that nothing could be hidden from him. Jesus does not thrust Peter aside. He gives him a threefold commission, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep. And in this commission, he was doing two things. He was showing Peter that he trusted him. That he trusted him. He was also testing him. But he was showing him that he trusted him And that's what forgiveness does. Forgiveness is an opportunity that you grasp, and it's a responsibility that you shoulder. And then you go on with it to bring glory to the Lord. There's a wonderful little book by C.S. Lewis called The Silver Chair. And in this, there's a story of a little girl named Jill, who because she shows off on a cliff, causes a a little boy who is afraid of heights to fall and be killed. Aslan, the great lion, with the breath of his mouth, who represents the Christ figure, swishes him away into heaven. But Jill doesn't know this, and so she is crying. And then when she cries and cries, have you ever cried for a long time? I talked to someone last week who had gone through a grief experience with the death of her father and you weep for a long time you become very thirsty and Jill was thirsty and then she heard this rippling sound of water and she turned to look where the water was and there was this great lion who represents Christ now you all remember the story how there's no other source of water except that water how that lion has devoured princes and kingdoms and powers but then the thing that I want to get to is this. Jill says, uh, C.S. Lewis says this about Jill, and it's worth remembering when you talk to someone who's troubled, crying is all right in its way while it lasts, but you have to stop sooner or later, and then you still have to decide what to do. Well, that's the truth. Crying is all right, in its way, while it lasts, but sooner or later you have to stop, and then you have to decide what to do. That's why I printed and I hope you'll take the bulletin home today and look at it. And you'll see there a little lesson from Scripture Union And you'll see another lesson from Leonard Griffith. The Scripture Union is a devotional quarterly that many of you have heard me speak of, uh, which has as its purpose the cultivation of the reading of the Bible in order that we might appropriate from it light for us to walk in the way uh, of life. And so our lesson from Scripture Union says Do you sometimes get jittery anxious and troubled, submerged in a mass of things, much serving, and many things. When we get that way, we often become critical of those nearest to us. You see, when we get very busy doing something, we think that sort of gives us a license to jump on whoever's near us to us, uh, or whoever ever happens to be handy, that we have a uh, we've earned the right to be crabby for a little while, and that's really not right. I'm as guilty of it as anyone could be, uh, but it's not right. And that's what Jesus is seeking to teach us here, and he's seeking to teach us a cure for it. And the way I became interested in this scripture union and this method of studying the Bible And this has to do with our lesson in the family of God and learning to love Jesus and praying for one another. Uh, God speaks to you at different times about things. I remember once asking one of our sons uh, when I was concerned about whether or not he'd made a real commitment of his life. And I said to him, Sam, have you really given your heart to the Lord? And he said, yes, three times. (laughs) and I said tell me about it (laughs) and so he said well once I was scared and I was in my room by myself and I got to wondering what would happen to me if I died and so I asked Jesus to come into my heart and then he said there was another time and I was listening to someone preach and what they said really got to me and so I gave my heart to the Lord again And then he said there was another time when some calamity had befallen him, and in that uh, moment of calamity, he gave his heart to the Lord. Well, now, there's nothing wrong with that. That's good theology. (laughs) We all go through periods of giving our heart to the Lord, don't we? There are times when we feel his nearness there, uh, and we should respond to those times. You don't have to be able to just write it out on a certain day. You may have a number of different days in which God uh, speaks to you. Well, the way I was introduced to Scripture Union, the first time was out in Africa in 1960. I was on a trip uh, with uh, Leighton Ford and we were going before Billy Graham who was coming to preach uh, all across the continent of Africa. And uh, Leighton and I had landed in uh, Dakar uh, uh, on the coast of West Africa and I remember a man came out to the airport to meet us and he had worked for years trying to win Muslims to a faith in Jesus Christ. And those of us who are so conscious of numbers can learn a great lesson from this. I remember uh, Leighton saying to him, uh, how many people have you won since you've been, I asked him how long he'd been there, and he'd been there for some 14 or 15 years, and he said, how many people have you won for, uh, to the Lord? And the man said to him, I'm not sure, maybe one or two. You see, he was there out of faithfulness to Christ, and he was seeking to witness, but in a land like that, when a person converts to Jesus Christ, it will cost him his relationship to his family, it will cost him his job, it may even cost him his life, literally. But that man, he was a Frenchman, a French Evangelical Christian, French reform but he was being faithful to Christ. Well, when we had gotten to the place where we were staying that night, Someone had a copy of Scripture Union, I think an intervarsity worker from England who happened to be out there also working and he shared from Scripture Union uh, the the devotional lesson, and that made an impression on me and I remembered trying to think where I could get a copy of that, and I think I did get a copy of it and then After the several months that that one lasted, I didn't know where to get it because it was not yet in the United States at that time. Then the next time I came in contact with Scripture Union was when Donald Mitchell, who used to be our dean uh, here at this college, had just moved to Montreat, and he was a Woodrow Wilson professor of history here at Montreat Anderson College, and he and Grace um, uh, were living in uh, Mrs. Ross's. A cottage uh, here in Montreat and I called on them and Donald said to me uh, would you mind uh, uh, if I share with you our devotional tonight and so he read from the Scripture Union and he explained uh, the passage of Scripture and and it seemed to help me get to the meaning uh, more than I usually did because I had a habit of just reading the same passages over and over or trying to plot on through the Bible and then getting bogged down. Uh, But scripture union sort of gives you a balanced scriptural diet and so this helped me. Now, uh, I say that because here we're learning about devotion. The best cure for some of us is to allow us to sit humbly at Jesus' feet and listen to his teaching as Mary did. And for others, the cure is to experience the presence of Jesus in our work. And you remember Brother Lawrence, the bumbling fellow who had been wounded as a soldier and worked in a monastery kitchen? He said, I felt Jesus Christ as close to me in the kitchen as I ever did at the Blessed Sacrament. And he wrote a devotional uh, uh, book that's been A classic through the ages called The Practice of the Presence of God. Now ask, do you choose the best available time of the day for Bible study and prayer? I am not a morning person. I'm not one of those people who gets up at 5 o'clock and prays. If I got up at 5 o'clock, I'd either be sick or something would be wrong. I can't get up then and think straight. It takes me a while to get waked up. I usually stay awake late at night and read late, and then this causes me to uh, get up later than a lot of other people uh, do. But when I get coffeeed up and get um, uh, ready to think, then I can take my Bible and I can sit down and go through my prayer list and understand what I'm doing. Uh, different people have different uh, periods in which they're their brightest. And so that's the time you want to put into the word of God. Uh, do you choose the best uh, available time for, of the day for Bible and prayer? Uh, here he says, if it is before breakfast, do you go to bed early enough? I don't. Uh, if your time is very limited, can you make a better use of the minutes that you have? Now you can do that. Uh, I carry a New Testament, a pocket New Testament with me. Uh, every place I go and have for many, many years because I often find that I can find little spots where I'm waiting to get in the doctor's office or I'm waiting to see someone else. And if I read uh, from the Bible at that time, I can pray in a way that will help me uh, to uh, learn not only the lesson from the Bible at that time, but also will be beneficial to me in integrating what I'm praying for at that particular time for someone else. Uh, You'd be astonished if you went over to Memorial Mission Hospital and you looked into the um, room just outside the Fullerton Wing there where the coronary care unit is. And you see people in there who are dreadfully afraid because someone has been brought in from someplace here in western North Carolina And there you will see people burdened deeply. And if you just spot those people, you can sometimes pray for them. I don't think I've ever visited the Mayo Clinic that I haven't seen people in the cafeterias or in the cafes uh, that are close to there. uh, Who uh, are not in need of prayer or when I've said the grace before meal have come over to me just because they saw me bow my head in prayer. Someone came, came over and spoke to me once, I remember there, and wanted me to pray for someone whom they loved uh, who was undergoing surgery. And so God can use this priority. We don't want to be so distracted in the doing of things that we neglect in showing our love for Jesus and allowing him to speak to us and then presenting our friends to him in prayer. And when we do this, then our Lord Jesus speaks to us. Martha's busyness created a critical, resentful spirit. Mary's attentiveness uh, caused Jesus to commend her to him. And then in the resurrection of Lazarus, Uh, which occurs in John chapter 11. I don't want to leave you with a bad impression of Mary, um, of Martha, because Martha learns. And in John chapter 11, which is one of the greatest chapters in the the Bible, and it also has one of the greatest sentences in all of the Bible, you will see Martha again in a better light, uh, and in a light which will uh, speak to you. Uh, verse 30 Uh, Jesus had heard that his friend Lazarus was sick he didn't come immediately but delayed and then when he did go we see Martha uh, in verse 30 now Jesus had not yet come into the village but was still in the place where Martha met him Uh, by the way when Martha comes out to meet him Uh, That's interesting. Go back up to verse uh, 20. Uh, Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. Uh, She's a mover, and she went out to meet uh, Jesus, but Mary still sat in the house. She was evidently um, overburdened with what had happened in the death of her brother. Uh, Martha, therefore, said to Jesus, and here again you see Martha is kind of a bossy type. She said to Jesus before, uh, rebuke my sister because she's not helping me. And here she blurts out to Jesus, and that's a pretty good word for prayer because what you blurt out is likely to be what your feelings really are. Uh, if you hit your finger with a hammer, you don't stop and make up a speech. Uh, you, 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 you usually, you blurt Uh, And uh, prayer is often like that. Uh, So Martha therefore said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We sent word to you. And if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now you see there's a little resentment there. Uh, And yet look at what she says. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, Your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, Now this is the greatest sentence almost in the whole New Testament. I am... The resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Isn't that a tremendous confession of faith that she makes? How could you make any better statement of faith than that? So Martha may be a plotter and learn a little slower and be a... a, A sort of a fussed budget at times, but here when she does come to a faith, uh, uh, an expression of her faith, it's as great as it can possibly be, and then she sends for Mary, the teacher is here, and is calling for you, and Mary comes to her, and so this is uh, to teach us this lesson, uh, that scene in that home, and Martha's affirmation and their sisters' relationship is evidently yield. They don't have any quarrel with each other that lasts. And then, of course, Mary falls at Jesus' feet, and she says almost the same words that Martha has said. And Jesus speaks to her the great words. And then in that lesson that I read from John 12, you see how Mary uh, knows enough to understand that Jesus is going to the cross and how even his disciples can understand this. And uh, look at the difference. This person who has far been with the Lord, who is deep in the things of God, has a ripple effect. Uh, it reaches, Jesus said, as long as this gospel is preached, even to the ends of the world, wherever it goes, this will be told as a memorial to her. So we need both, Martha and Mary. And we need to cultivate that devotional spirit of prayer that's there. Sir Thomas Brown was a great physician and he wrote these words which I want you to hear about prayer and work. Now this is a busy doctor. I have resolved to pray more and to pray always, to pray in all places where quietness inviteth, in the house, on the highway, on the street. I purpose to take occasion of praying upon the site of any church which I pass, that God may be worshiped there in spirit, and that souls may be saved there. To pray for my sick patients, and for the patience of other physicians. At my entrance into any home to say, may the peace of God abide here. After hearing a sermon, to pray for a blessing upon God's truth and upon the messenger, upon the sight of a beautiful person, to bless God for his creatures. One of the prettiest girls I ever saw in my life. I said to her one time, Something about her, uh, her face being so pretty. And she said, if you think it's pretty, thank Jesus. He made me. And I thought that was great. Isn't that good? Uh, he says, to pray upon the sight of a beautiful person to bless God for his creatures. To pray for the beauty of such a person's soul that the person is not only pretty on the outside, but pray that God will make them pretty in their soul. Upon the side of a deformed person to pray to God to give him wholeness of soul, and by and by to give him beauty on the day of the resurrection. I went one time into a home where a woman was in an iron lung, in a hall of fame, athlete, who was there with several others when we visited, came over and spoke to her. And he put, she of course was in the iron lung and he had to touch her head. And he said to her, Mrs. Bryson, one day Jesus will come again. And when he comes again, he'll give you a wonderful new body. Lord Catherine has long since gone to be with the Lord and you see the, the good that comes from the testimony of a person there in prayer now then I wanted to get to this in closing I, I, I say the prayer you know before we eat in the restaurant sometimes out loud if there are several of us sometimes just silently that's the way I met my wife I, I was praying and she came over and asked me a religious question <laughs> out at West Texas State College years ago. That's a good way to get a uh, uh, that, uh I was praying another time and I met a man uh, years and years ago over in Waynesville in, in Dan's drugstore where I ate a bowl of chili and and uh, had a hot dog back then, I could eat all that stuff, and uh, uh, the the guy who came in had been out of the Navy one year, he was a retired Navy captain, and man if you've ever been in the Navy, and you ever meet a Navy captain, you look good at him, (laughs) because that is a very high-ranking officer, Don King, who joined our church this morning, was on the aircraft carrier midway that I went on years ago. And a Navy captain is like a king on a desert island when he, <laughs> he runs that ship. Uh, well, this Navy captain that ate when I was eating that bowl of chili and that hot dog, and he saw me pray, and we got into a conversation. Well, we became friends. That was in 1955, 29 years ago this May. Monday of this week I stood at his graveside and I saw the Marines and a colonel from the Marine Corps and the flag over his coffin at a private burial. Last fall when it became evident that he had cancer and would die, he called his family uh, in to give them some instructions and he told them If anyone says any words over me when I'm gone, I'd like for you to get Calvin to do it. And he said, there's a little project that I haven't told you about. And then he told them the answer to a prayer. We had these missionaries who stood a moment ago. There used to be a China missionary by the name of Armstrong, who lived not a hundred yards from where I am now, here in Montreat. She had a grandson who came here one time and was staying in her cottage. And I got a telephone call from an aunt of this grandson. And she said, do you know uh, Hampton Hudson? And I said, no. And she said, well, he's staying in his grandmother's cottage there in Montreat. And I'm not sure he's well. Uh, He's left school. He's been in the Navy. Would you go and see about him? So I, I went to see about him and she said he'd been over to England and she thought maybe that uh, he wasn't right emotionally or something and uh, I talked with him and there was not, not a thing wrong with him and I came back and called her she was in Winston-Salem and I said he's fine and she said but he went to England and I said well if I wasn't married and I want to go to England I'd go to England <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, there's nothing wrong with that and uh, so I asked the young man if he would, was interested in school, and he said he didn't have any money. I went to see George Stockton, who is now gone uh, on to be with the Lord, who was our Dean at that time. and I said, "George, can you get me a scholarship for a China missionary's grandson?" And he said, "Man, we don't have any scholarship." And I said, "Well, don't give me all that we've got to get him in school." And uh, so George. Uh, came through. He was like Eeyore in winning the Pooh. He, George would always give up and do what was <laughs> he was. When, and then, and uh, uh, so we got the scholarship and he worked over in the cafeteria. Then he decides to go. God had called him by this time. He started coming to prayer meetings, Sunday school, church, everything, and just soaked it up. Then he told me God had called him into the ministry. And I gave him the keys to my office because some kids used it to come and have a prayer meeting early in the morning, earlier than I wanted to get up. And uh, so uh, they worked in the cafeteria. And um, so one summer, he told me that uh, I came up here and he came by to see me. And he said, I've moved my things out of my grandmother's house out on the front porch because she's leased, uh, rented the cottage for the summer. And... uh, he said, God told me that I was to go to seminary and I needed the money to leave this morning. And I've been to the post office already twice and the money's not there. And I said, well, maybe the Lord done mail checks out. Like, <laughs> you, you think they do, or maybe you got it wrong. I tried to reason with him a little bit. And he said, no, this is a, a, a specific answer to prayer. I know that I'm supposed to go to seminary. And I know I was supposed to go today. And the classes begin down there tomorrow, and I'm supposed to leave. And uh, so I said, well, how much do you need? And uh, it was, back then it was $150. That was 1961, 1963. And uh, So I said, well, come back a little later. And so when he got gone, I picked up the phone and started begging everyone I knew. And uh, the person that usually will help me out with some money had gone to Europe. And I called my wife and I said, can we write a check for $150? She said, it'll bounce. And and so I... uh, uh, I thought, well, what will I do? And there was a call that said, call Clarence Gordon. Now, that's that retired Navy captain and, uh, that I'd met when I was praying over there in Dan's drugstore. And Clarence call, had called me the day before, and I hadn't returned my call. You ever do that? Oh, I felt awful. He called back, and he said, Preacher, why don't you return your calls? And I said, Clarence, I'm sorry. And he said, before I said this, he said, do you ever have a student out there who's really a good student who needs some money to go to school? I said, what would you say, Clarence? (laughs) He repeated it. And I said, you have just answered a prayer. He said, well, I'm not so sure about that. And I said, well, I am. And uh, so I proceeded to tell him the story about the the boy, and he said, can you get your treasurer to advance him a check if I... And he said, I'm writing a check now, and I'll mail it on, and it'll be there. And he said, how's he going to get to seminary? And I said, he's going to go on the bus. And he said, well, I said he's going to hitchhike. And he said he ought not to do that. He ought to go on the bus. I'll write an additional amount. So he did. And so I went over to the treasurer and got the check and went over to the cafeteria, and this fellow was in the cafeteria uh, waiting because he'd already moved out of the house. And I walked up and I t- took the check to him. I said, here's the money for you go to seminary. He said, you're kidding. I said, nope, I'm not, here it is, take it. And uh, I think I'd even cash the check so I could give him the money. And uh, he said, uh, you begged this from someone. And I said, I tried to, but it didn't work. He said, you wrote it yourself. I said, I couldn't. A check would have bounced. He said, where did it come from? And I said, a man was trying to get me yesterday to give it to you. The Lord already answered your prayer. I just didn't know it. And uh, so he said, excuse me. And he walked over where there was a little cluster of girls who were serving tables and they wore little pink uniforms and I I remember walking over and one of these girls broke into tears and covered her face and was weeping and when uh, he came back over where I was I said what's the matter with that girl and he said she's in a little prayer group and we'd all prayed for this and that was the answer to the prayer and I guess she was overcome well he went on off he went through seminary he became an associate pastor of a very large church, and then left that work to go down to Florida, where he works now in drug rehabilitation. We had one of his students, one of his uh, people that he had filched out of a prison and helped to come to know Christ, and that young man went through Montreat Anderson College and then through Taylor University. That's one. Well, I went over for the funeral Monday out at Riverside Cemetery and I carried with me a list. I would checked with the registrar and I counted 17 that I could remember since 1963. 17 people who had been helped. Five of them had become ministers or missionaries. Now that's remarkable, isn't it? He, he made a, a stipulation about the uh, agreement. They, no one was to know that he did it. Jesus said, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. He did not want them to know. I would have them write a letter, dear captain, and then bring it to me. And then I would put it in another envelope and mail it to them, uh, to him. He wanted me to have personal contact with the people, so he said, I don't want them uh, to get the money for doing nothing, so give them something to do around the church office. So that's the people who usually uh, do something with the bulletins or help to put out hymn books or run errands for the church office. He always wanted something done for him. But, you know, that was a smart move because that meant that I had contact with those people for two years at a time, some of them. So Willie Ferris is now serving as a missionary. And Charles Bayer is now a minister of the gospel. Hampton Hudson is a minister. And then the others down through the years, 17 different people, Sheila Benjamin, a biblical archeologist, many others who've been helped. Uh, Cam King, whose husband is here this morning. So many people. You see what one little ripple effect comes? So prayer and work go together. No man is saved by works or by merit. The only merit by which we are saved is the merit which Jesus Christ gave for us when he died.